The snow outside in northwestern Pennsylvania was coming down an inch an hour, and they parked the gurney um, right by the ambulance. The ambulance doors were open, and there was this light shining on my dad's face. And there was this soft... Hello, and welcome to Finding Your Spark again. I am so glad to be here with you this week. My guest today is Yvonne Caputo. She's a teacher who taught in the Erie, Pennsylvania public schools for 18 years. She has also been vice president of human resources at a retirement community, a corporate trainer and consultant, and a psychotherapist. She has a master's degree in education and clinical psychology. In her book, Flying with Dad, it's about her relationship with her father through the telling of World War II stories. Her second book, Dying with Dad, was released at the end of May. And today she will come and talk to us. Welcome, Yvonne. It's so nice to be here. It is so great to be here with you. And I am really excited to talk to you about your books and about your experience. I mean, you have such a varied experience in that teaching and psychotherapy, they really do set you up for understanding the world in a very different way, don't they? They do. And particularly with the my second book, Dying with Dad, I look back on my life and I see the spiritual hand guiding me, you know, through each career so that when the time came to talk to dad about death and dying, I had a skill set that I prize and it came from the teaching and the psychotherapy and the consulting. Uh, so I, I really say that frequently, that there was a spiritual guide in, in the careers that I chose along the way. I love that. Um, you know, when you just were talking about that, one of the things that occurred to me is that when it comes to difficult topics, <laughs> right, when we have to talk to people about things we don't want to face or deal with, uh, that tapping in to some time in our lives, like teachers really have a relationship with information that is generally based in curiosity or interest. Um, and they're certainly not shy with information, right? Information is, is just that. So there's, it's the first step. And then we go from there. And, um, and I love the idea of bringing that into your relationships as you did. It's been very helpful along the way. Uh, I remember in graduate school a long, 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 long time ago, one of the professors said to us that the most difficult thing that we would have to do as therapists was listen. And I remember thinking, oh, well, that's got to be the easiest thing we have to do. You know, what do you mean the most difficult? That turned me on my head, however, when I had my first client, that presence that you needed to have, how you needed to hang on every word and at the same time be thinking about the context of what people were saying and then 
okay, what was the question you were going to ask? Where were you going to take the conversation from there? So listening and to the kids too. I mean, there were many times that my students would come to me and said, you listened to me when I really needed someone, you listened to me. So both the teaching and the psychotherapy were occupations that I had to hone that skill of listening. Most times when we're in a conversation, somebody will be saying something to us and we're ready for a response. And whether or not that response is truly going to fit what the person is saying may not matter. So this is a totally different kind of listening that really I was helped by the careers that I had. Yeah. I love this uh, illusion that you're making, you know, this, this space that you're making for presence and for also for holding space for whatever falls out of the person's mouth <laughs> to come, right? Because there's so much when we're talking to one another, there's so much that indicates whether we're safe or not safe to say the next sentence. And so what your interactions are change drastically when you become really present and have the ability to just hold open a little space for people to tell you whatever they need to tell you. One of the most effective sentences that I learned along the way was three little words. Tell me more. Tell me more. What makes you say what you're saying? Where does that come from? And not even the questions that follow up, but just the tell me more. When I worked in the retirement community, my office was up on the third floor. And it was also a floor where there were residents. And my door was always open and residents would walk by. And many times they would come in and sit down and start a conversation. And on some occasions, what came out was, Yvonne, I want to go. And I would say, tell me more. And I would hear, I'm tired. I've been in pain for so many years. My husband is gone. My friends are dying. I'm ready. I just want to go. Now, what would happen with many of our staff, if, if a resident would say that, their response would be, oh, don't say that. We want you around. You know, what would we do without you? And the minute that those words came out, the resident would shut down because they'd just been invalidated. So that tell me more um, is just a stance that I've often taken, particularly around difficult subjects. Yes. And we all face them. I mean, most of us have elders that we count on to be here who are not going to be here forever. And also, you know, a lot of people are present for someone their own age or even younger that they care about that's going to go. They're going to go before you. So there's a lot of emotional connection that can be made in those spaces, a lot of ease that can be created. 
and uh, and I love as we were referring to in the green room this space that is really a soul level joy that can be accessed. But first, you have to be curious, right? You have to allow the person to be the fullness of who they are. I know you talked about that in your book. That's exactly what happened um, when I was writing Flying with Dad. In 2008, cold January night, pitch dark, I'm on the phone with my father, and Sunday calls were don't interrupt a Steelers game. Um, and he opened up and told me this funny, quirky, off-the-wall story about making an emergency landing in freed Belgium at the end of World War II. Wow. Wow. So I said to him, I said, I want to get a piece of paper and a pencil. I want to take notes. His response was, what the hell do you want to do that for? And I said, this is good stuff, Dad. This is something that maybe the family would like to have. So where it came from in the very next phone call, I, I don't know. But I said to Dad, if you're willing, start at the beginning. And story after story after story started tumbling off of his, out of his mouth, rather. And I began to see the man I always wanted to know. Dad was greatest generation, food on the table, roof over our head, there every night, knew he loved me. But to have the kind of intimate conversations in that space that you talk about, that soul space, we didn't have those. And I always felt that that was something that was missing. So as the stories rolled off his tongue, and as he saw what kind of research I would do, if he didn't remember something or to clarify something that he had said, he began to open up more and more and more. And this relationship that I had so longed for started to blossom. And it led to his telling me about the nightmare he came home with for three solid years when he came home from the war. A nightmare was so, that was so bad, he dug channels in the mattress trying to, ex to escape in his dream, the B-24 that was going down. Um, he also told me about a flashback that he had. And as a psychotherapist, I could explain them. You know, and I said to him, I'm, I'm so sad that they didn't know when you came home, what we now know. And dad, those nightmares were normal. His response again was, what the hell do you mean? And, and so I explained the neurobiological process of nightmares. And, and he said to me, he said, well, it didn't seem like the other guys that I met on the streets when I was at home, that they were bothered by anything about the war. And I said, that's because you didn't talk about it. That's because you came home and you acted as if it was all done. And it wasn't all done. It wasn't all done for a lot of people. And dad, those nightmares were normal because of what you watched and what you experienced. 
So that kind of thing uh, was really the beginning that eventually led me to be able to talk to dad about death and dying. On the phone sometimes, um, he would just say to me, I'm so ready to go. Tell me more. And we'd get into it. And then sometimes I would just be kind of listening for the emotional content of whatever it was he was talking to me about. And I would say, are, are you ready to go? And sometimes he would say, yeah. And sometimes he would say, well, no, I've had some really good days and it's been, it's been nice and relaxing and fun. So no, I don't think I am. And we would go back and forth like that. But I got to the point where I just wasn't afraid about talking about death and dying. Yeah, there's a certain acceptance of our, our process of being human that comes in. So, you know, I talk a lot about having an impact on our version of reality, right? And so if you took it out of context, you might think that you can just change everything. But the reality is we, what, what is it? my father used to say, it's a one-way ticket, right? It's like, you come in, you grow up, you have experiences, eventually you leave. Where When you leave, that's, you've got some impact over that. Um, you know, whether it's at 50 or 100 or whatever, right? Those are, those are some of the details of how we live and the choices we make and uh, those moments that we say, I'm, I'm, this is it for me, I'm ready to go, or nope, I've got some more living to do. Um, but when we do that uh, and we, we really accept, really accept what is happening, both for us and also for the people around us, right? For the the person who's saying, yeah, I'm just about done here. Uh, there's a whole different level of being able to interact with one another, isn't there? Oh, it's true. It's so true. Um, Dad, in those moments, I was talking in the green room about a document called The Five Wishes. And it's an advanced directive on heart. And some of the questions just went so deep. I said to dad, how do you want to be remembered? And he said, oh, for my volunteer service with the Red Cross. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, what about World War II? And he said, well, that too. I mean, it was as if World War II was at no level comparable to his volunteering with, with the Red Cross. Um, so those kinds of things came out of it. When we talked about the funeral, he said, I said, well, one of the questions in the uh, five wishes is what kind of a funeral do you want? Dad was Roman Catholic. And he said, I want a high mass. I want the incense. I don't care what readings there were or are. I want you kids to choose and the grandkids to choose and whoever would like to do the readings, that's fine by me. You'll choose something really nice, I know. My husband has a beautiful tenor voice and my father said, and Kirk will sing the Ave Maria, the Lord's Prayer and Amazing Grace. And 
That's quite Benny's- a list right there, by the way. Your <laughs> husband's quite talented. <laughs> yeah. But here's something else that came out of it. He said, you know that thing you're they were doing lately, Yvonne, where people get up and talk about you at the funeral? And I said, yeah. He said, I don't want that. He said, if people haven't told me something nice to my face while I'm alive, then don't stand up at my funeral and tell me. I don't want that. So we wrote that in. And when we sat down with the priest to plan the funeral mass, my brother said, you know, gee, I don't really know how this goes. And I spoke up and said, I do. This is what dad wants. So he planned his own funeral mass. So some people might find that really very difficult. I didn't. I was just so grounded that here was another problem that we might have had to have faced in making choices. We didn't have a problem. He had said exactly what it was that he wanted. Yeah. And this frankness that you come at these topics with, they really allow a space like, you know, when we create that kind of frankness in our relationships on a day-to-day basis with people who are not on their way out, then everything changes, right? When we ask those really potent questions like, what do I want to be remembered for? Well, that's going to tell you a lot about your priorities, right? And the fact that your father was able to say, this was important to me, this act that I did, I volunteered in this organization who's doing work that I believe in, right? That that when we put our full energy behind things, when we make the decisions what to do every day, right, then it's easy to answer those questions. And it's and it's not a, an uncomfortable conversation about the review of my life in a way that I wish I had gotten to this and I wish I had gotten to that, right? Because you were you were both able to be frank about it. That's true. And another little story that is very telling is in my psychotherapy practice, I had uh, a woman who had an acute illness. She had two transplants and there were things she could do and things she couldn't do. And over the years, she would come back into my practice just for a tune-up. And it got to the point where I was questioning, what, what was I doing? Was I doing any good for her? So I went to a conference, and it was on trauma, and the speaker was excellent. And I went up during one of the breaks and stood in line, and when I got up to him, I told him the very same things I'm telling you, She, you know, that I was beginning to question. And he said to me, he said, Yvonne, there's only one question you have to ask her, and that question is, How do you want to live till you die? How do you want to live till you die? I went back to my seat and sat down, and I don't think I heard much of the rest of the conference. I was so logged on to, how in the world am I going to do that? Well, lo and behold, of course, she came back in for a tune-up. And I'm sitting in my chair, knowing that I need to ask this question, wondering how I'm going to do it. But I took a deep breath and said to her, I'm going to ask you a strange question. 
and we'll just see how it goes. And I said to her, how do you want to live till you die? She cracked up. She started belly laughing. And she said to me, Yvonne, that's the best question you've ever asked me. And from that time on, when she came in for tune-ups, that's always where we began. Because as things shifted for her, how do you want to live? What are things that you still could be doing that would make you feel good, would make you feel, for her, it was a sense of purpose. The more ill she got, the more unable she was to do some of the things she loved to do. But she wanted that sense of purpose. She wanted that sense of giving back. So our conversations went that way, you know, that she would leave and she would have a list of things that she had thought about doing that were now on her to-do it list. How do you want to live till you die? I love that. It's such a great question. And it puts it all into perspective because, uh, you know, what we were talking about earlier in terms of it is a one-way ticket. Like <laughs> you come in, you go out, there's two doors, that's it. You do something in between. And so that question, whether you're 18 or 58 or 108, is a really good question, right? It's what is important to me in this moment and in my life, in the, in the context of my lifespan. So important, really great. Now, earlier we were talking about some of these really difficult um, conversations and, and what opens up in there. And this concept that you brought up of sacred joy, can we talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. I didn't know for sure, or actually for real, until I was with my father and he was actively dying. He had been in the hospital. The social worker said to me, when can we send your dad home? And I said, you can send your dad home when he's ready. Um, I live six and a half hours away. So I had driven back from the hospital to home. He called me on the phone and he was livid. I could hold the phone out from my ear. Why did you tell them that I could go home? I said, Dad, I said you could go home when you were ready. It doesn't sound like you're ready. And then he said, Yvonne, I'm scared. Can you come home? Can you take a leave of absence? And I said, absolutely. It was at night and I said, Dad, I'll leave in the morning, but in the meantime, I'm going to find somebody to come and stay with you. And I'll be there as soon as I can. So I got in the house and he wanted to go back and try and get some sleep. So we did that. Some neighbors from across the street came over. They were going to help me move a recliner up to the living room because that might have been a more comfortable place for dad to see to sleep. And we heard a thud. And we went back in the bedroom and he was face down between the bed and the dresser. I called the EMTs. They came very quickly. Somebody just lived right up the road. He and I moved dad out to the end of the bed. And he said, because we're EMTs, we have to work on him. I called the hospital. 
I said to the unit that he's on, get dad's DNR to the emergency room. They're bringing him in. The doctor in the emergency room called the EMTs and said, you can stop working on him. So I laid down beside him, put my arm over his chest, told him that I loved him, told him that he was going to see mom. And then I did what was the glue in our family. And that's, I said the Lord's Prayer in his ear. And he was gone. And lo and behold, the EMTs put him on the gurney. And they're taking him out of his house feet first, which is exactly the way he wanted to go. The snow outside in northwestern Pennsylvania was coming down an inch an hour. And they parked the gurney um, right by the ambulance. The ambulance doors were open. And there was this light shining on my dad's face. And there was this soft, sweet smile. And I went, yes! And the EMTs looked at me like, you know, I'd lost every marble I might have had. And I said to them, you've given my dad his wish to be carried for feet first out of his house. That's when I experienced sacred joy. My father's death was not a painful experience for me. It was so filled with joy because he had trusted me with his truth. He had trusted me to be his healthcare agent. He had opened up to me and told me his life story so that in the end, I could give back to him what he had given to me all my life. Now, what's more joyful than that? So, so when his, the anniversary of his death was January 2nd, I don't grieve his loss in the same way that I grieve the loss of others. Do I miss him? Sure. Have I melted down in tears at times? Sure. Do I want to have a pot roast dinner with him and ask him a ton of questions? Absolutely. But equal to that, is this sacred joy. And so I have become so passionate about sharing this story because I would like other people to experience what I've experienced. I mean, I can look at his picture. It's over here on my desk. And I experience that sacred joy all over again. So it's changed the grieving process for me. It's not what I experienced when mom died. It's not what I experienced when we lost my brother. It's something totally different. I am so grateful that you came here and are talking about this. I feel like a lot of times talking about our emotional journey in extreme circumstances, it gives such an incredible model for how we can... Um, how the choices we can make during the rest of our lives, right? Because everything is amped up when we are in these extreme circumstances. And in addition, I have had such a similar experience in terms of my father's death and my husband's death. And so there's this sense of, um, 
I mean, there's a sense of joy that is in this passing, right? There are, there are communities that actually celebrate the death process rather than grieve the loss of the, of the person because they, you know, they are finally back where they belong. Right. And, um, and I think there's some sense of that when you can feel that joy, you know that there was a, an experience that this beautiful soul had on the earth and that even the exit point was wonderful. Um, and I will say that in terms of making those moments spectacular, when you can really show up and be present for that person or for yourself in that process, um, those moments can be so spectacular. My my father, when he passed, when he passed, he he almost died um, two days earlier than he died, and then um, I, some things happened, and it, people were blaming themselves. And he he came back, <laughs> you know, he came back for a day or so. He buttoned up some things that he wanted to finish. He got all the emails. Got one of the kids to write all the emails he wanted written. You know, he came back and he did what he needed to do. He wasn't finished, and um, and when he went, he had all of his children now. Mind you, he had to ask for them with his eyes because he could not speak. He was very far along in the process. But my mother was sitting next to him and he kept looking at her and then looking at each of the children. And all of a sudden she went, where's this child? There's one of the children is not here. And he and he's going like this. <laughs> right. And so he did not go until he had everything he wanted out of that experience. Right. And that's about intentional living. That's about how do we uh, be present in all of our lives, both, both when we're standing at the exit door and when we're standing next to our loved one, who's also doing that. And, and I will just say your, your story about the, the beautiful spotlight on his face as he, as he got into the ambulance reminds me so much of my husband's passing. I questioned whether I should have called the ambulance or not. I knew his wishes were not to go to the hospital. I called the ambulance anyway. <laughs> um, I, to be honest, I didn't realize we were at the end, right? I just thought, Oh, this is a bump along the way we've got to deal with. Right. And, um, and without that, that time, without me saying that let's go forward into this hospital situation. Um, when he passed away, there were fireworks outside of his window. There was a little spotlight coming in from one of the windows, a reflection off of a window. I mean, he had all of the spectacular moment that he would have wanted, right? He was, he was a bit like that. He'd like a little flamboyancy and, um, and those are moments that only happen when we trust ourselves, right? Because like even that thing that I just said, like I could have not called. I could have, I could have said, well, I know, and that he doesn't want to go to the hospital, and maybe uh, this is the end, and I should face reality and all that. But I just did what felt like the next right thing, to be present. It's amazing to me how miraculous it can sometimes be just absolutely miraculous. And of course, realistically, it's not sometimes. 
it wasn't miraculous when we lost my brother. Um, my mother passed away in the hospital. She was in the early stages of dementia. And I was really ticked at her after she died because she was in the hospital. But the more I thought about it and the more I knew my mother's nature, she didn't want people around her. She was very private when it came to illnesses and stuff like that. And that goes into my own personal history and my grandmother and all that kind of thing. But my mother didn't. I think truly she did not want people with her. And the miraculous part of it was, is that her dementia was causing some pretty aberrant behavior that would have been so unlike her. And she was in the hospital because the doctors were wanting to try and adjust medication so that dad could take her home. And they asked dad not to come visit her because it would upset her and it would get the ball rolling. And then they didn't know whether the medications. He was driving and he said, I don't know what it was, Yvonne, but I just decided I was going to go see her. So he went up to her room. She was calm and quiet. And she said, her dinner tray was there. And she said, Mike, would you feed me my applesauce? And he did. And when that was all finished, she looked at him and she said, I want you to go now because I know you don't like to drive at night. She passed away several hours after that. So the miraculousness was whatever she sensed, however she sensed, or she knew what it was that she needed to do for my dad. And he would talk about that after she passed, that he was so grateful for that last memory. So it happens that way. It does. And, and you can, and this is, you know, true throughout our lives. You can take what you want from these extreme circumstances and you can say, I'm going to focus on the fact that they were alone, that they had medication I didn't want them to have, that they, right, whatever those circumstances are, we can focus on those or we can look at it and say, wow, she came back and was present for applesauce with her love. I mean, that brings you to tears, right? That's a juicy, wonderful, amazing, miraculous moment that, that, we can have when we show up, like he showed up, he went, he followed his intuition to go there. And what you're saying reminds me of three experiences that I had from readers of Dying with Dad. You get beta readers and they read it for context and all this kind of thing. And for one young lady, she said, you know, Yvonne, my parents have tried to bring up death and dying with me, and I've shifted away. I've said, I don't want to hear it. We can talk about this later. It's not going to happen soon, so let's just table this. She said, after reading your book, I went to them and said, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. The second experience was an older gentleman who read the book, and he said, it never dawned on me I needed to do something like this. And later on, his daughter told me that for his 87th birthday, he said, this is what I want for my birthday. I want my daughters and my wife to be on a Zoom call 
for my birthday so that I can tell you about my five wishes. I have finished the document and I want you to know what I want. So they're going along and he's saying, I want this. I don't want this. I don't want that. And he said, I want to be cremated. So one of the daughters said, well, gee, dad, what do you want us to do with your ashes? His response was, well, I don't care. You know, throw them over the bridge. What, what does it matter at that point? And they said, wait a minute. Wouldn't you like your ashes to be spread on the farm where you grew up? He had been born and raised in a one-room house on the prairie in Canada. And he said, well, you don't have to do that. That's too much bother. They said, what if we'd like to do that? He said, would you really? And they said, yes, of course we would. He said, okay, I'll go back and rewrite that. I'll put that in the five wishes. Talk about open dialogue. The third one was the most sacred of all. One of the writers in our group had an acute illness that she had for 10 years. Surgery after surgery after surgery, a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort. And we received word that she had chosen hospice. But her husband had set it up so that the women in the group could have a Zoom call with her. When she got on the call with me, I didn't say much of anything because she just kept saying, thank you for the book. Thank you for the book. Thank you for the five wishes. I did it. I talked to my family about it. My husband's in agreement with it. My daughter's in agreement with it. We're all at peace with my wanting to go. And a day or two later, that's exactly what happened. So beautiful. I feel like we could talk all day about this and everything else, um, but time is short. So um, I would love to uh, make sure that everybody has a way to get in touch with you, to get the book. How can we all participate with you? Email. And it's simply Yvonne, Y-V-O-N-N-E, author, A-U-T-H-O-R, the number four, Yvonne, author four at gmail.com. They can also find me on LinkedIn and they can go to my publisher's website, Ingenium Books. And if they Google Ingenium Books and my name, Yvonne Caputo, they'll find me. And surprise to me, if you Google my name at all, there are all now because of the two books, there are references pretty much everywhere. That's wonderful. That's so great. Well, thank you so much for coming here today and spending this time and sharing your wisdom. Well, thank you. And to your audience, I hope you're encouraged to have those wonderful, deep, sacred conversations. Yes, indeed. I love that. I also want to remind everybody that you can go to donalyn.blog and pick up your copy of unbreakable.guide. And this will give you some tools, some practical tools and frameworks that you can use to walk through dark times and to amplify those good times in your life and become truly unbreakable. Until next time, see you. 